the optimal life. Well, hey, listen, that was a fun intro before we just came on. So thank you for the kind words. Uh, what was your favorite Indiana basketball team? What was your favorite season? Uh, well, you'll you have to laugh because I just bought a chair that replicates Bob Knight's chair he threw across the floor in <laughs> 1985, my senior year. But Oh, uh, wow. That was your senior season. Okay. And, uh, and I remember winning the national championship my freshman year, 1981. And, uh, but, but, uh, as I said, we have, we have season tickets to IU basketball and I've got two, uh, two of my five kids go to IU right now and maybe a third one coming next year. And, uh, that's my happy place, Bloomington, Indiana. I always, uh, I always refer to myself as a New Yorker with mid with Midwestern sensibilities. And so I just love to go to a place where, uh, where, where the people are kind and, and, uh, civility exists. Now, was it true that back then? You were going to the games because the teams were tremendously talented. We know that. But was there also the aura and the, the 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 enigma of Bobby Knight? You guys wanted to be in the stands just to watch him perform as well. Is that correct? You, you know, in retrospect, he was a he was godlike on the campus. Uh, you know, meaning he could have he could have run for governor or senator. He was the most powerful person in the state. And I think, you know, that was through the eyes of an 18 or a 19 or a 20 year old. I think through the eyes of a grown-up, I, I, I bifurcate what I think about Bobby. I think that he might have been the best teacher America's ever had and wasn't the best coach, but the best educator that America's turned out. Well, at the same time, it's hard to justify some of the methods that he used, which, you know, you know, in retrospect, were a little bit harsh and uh, it's hard to defend some of the things and some of the vulgarity and some of the some of the things that he did going forward. So I can, I can look at him both in as a great educator and also look at him for his unacceptable behavior. Sure. What things stand out about him? He's a, a true leader, but what were some of those characteristics that you believe made him to be what you say, a, a tremendous educator? Um, I, I always believe that good leaders create followers and great leaders create other great leaders. And I think if you see that who was turned out from that basketball program, I'm not talking just the players. I'm talking about the managers. I'm talking about that everybody that he influenced in a class he taught. He, he turned out a lot of great leaders and a lot of people that that took personal responsibility and, and believed that they could make a difference in the world. You know, the biggest example is my friend Scott Dolson, who's become the athletic director at uh, at Indiana. And I think he... He has been the, the greatest hire the university has had and has done such a fabulous job. He was a manager on the basketball team under Bob Knight in the 80s. Mm. And there he is, the AD now. Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, and, that's and, and there's dozens and dozens and dozens of examples that I'm aware of. And there's probably hundreds or thousands that I would not be aware of. But I think that's what a great teacher does. Tap into that a little bit. You made a comment. A good leader creates followers, but a great leader creates other great leaders. There's a big difference. Tap into the followers at piece of that. What exactly does that mean? I think one of the things you have to do as a leader is the number one job you have is the power to influence and the power to influence other people. And I think the idea is it starts with it starts with motivation. But I think motivation is not enough. Motivation is, you know, I would say it's kind of like Chinese food. You're hungry for more motivation after another after an hour of eating, you know, Chinese food. When I go to a Chinese restaurant, I want to you want to eat again an hour later. And I think it's the same thing. I think with that is, I think that 
what you, you, you teach people about discipline and focus and falling in love with the mundane. Um, and also show people what a great job looks like. And when you show people what a great job looks like, the people that have that focus and discipline and the passion, you know, they'll take they'll take the bull by the horns and 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 want to lead your organization and become great leaders themselves. Mm. And other people are just born to be followers. It's 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 you know, I I don't think I'm smart enough or have done enough sociological research to know whether leaders are born or whether they're made. But I think when you give and you expose people to that culture, I think you see a lot of people that, that become the best versions of themselves. And I think that's what you want to do. Yeah. I, the last time I saw this feverish type, uh, Bobby Knight was a feverish character, a leader who, as you point out, creates other leaders. The last time I saw fans so enamored was him until now with Deion Sanders. Have you seen what's going on with Colorado? I, I, I love the fact his captains are called leaders and dogs, not captains and assistant captains. I mean, what he has done has tapped into pop culture in a way that is uh, that is that is wonderful. And I think that when you take a look at the talent on his team, he's got a couple of studs. But I think if you go top to bottom, he doesn't have nearly the talent that many other teams have right now. And I think he will. And um, I think he gets people to believe. You know, I think in, in our organization, Nate, you know, one of the things, one of the mantras that we have, and some call it brainwashing, I call it leadership, is I believe that the people who work in our organization believe that if we do what we do well, we will win every time. And I think that there's just a visceral belief that if we do what we do well, we will win every time. And I think that it just becomes that that nobody has doubt in the organization, not that people are, you know, are, are you know, egomaniacs or not that people have hubris. But I think that if they know if they do their job and they do it right, we're going to win. And You're talking about Northeast private, Northeast yeah. private. That becomes that becomes a culture. I mean, that that becomes what the culture is and it becomes contagious. You know, it's almost going back to your basketball analogy when you're up a few points at the end of the game and they put you on the line to hit free throws. If the first guy or two misses a free throw, you can have great free throw uh, shooters becomes, you know, an epidemic of missing free throws where if the first guy sinks the, you know, the one and one, you know, mm -hmm. they, they foul a guy who's a 48% free throw shooter and he knocks down two on a one-on-one -on -one because the culture and the contagion is, is we're going to make those shots. Mm -hmm. we, you want to have that in your business. It's your power to influence I mean, I think that's all you have. I mean, isn't what the president of the United States has that that ultimately with the divisive culture that we have, I think that whether you take a look at Joe Biden or you look at Donald Trump or you look at Barack Obama and you could probably go back maybe one one more, or, you know, maybe one more group with the Internet and the divisiveness in our culture. What we've lost as a country is the ability of the president to rally the entire country around a cause. Mm. Because I think there's so many people that no matter what they say, will say uh, they're wrong because they're a Democrat or they're wrong because they're a Republican. And I think we've got to get back to a country where we can all rally around common causes and, and create a win-win situation where it's what I'll call, you know, uh, you know, a class three experience. It's got to be good. Like in our world, we call it a class three experience. It's got to be great for our client, the customer first. It's got to be great for my team second. And then it's got to be great for me third. And you mentioned that. Uh, if we do what we do well, nobody can compete. Our clients are going to have a successful outcome. We're going to be successful naturally because of that. So tell us briefly what exactly it is that you guys do there 
And then how do you do it well? Well, I, I think it's it first starts because there's got to be sizzle, but you got to have steak behind the sizzle. So what used to bug me to death, Nate, is when people used to say to me, all I want is a level playing field. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say, I just want a level playing field. And then I thought for decades, I thought, well, that, that sounds stupid to me. I want to run straight downhill. Why, why would I want a level playing field? And, and now I think I've created a mantra where I've said, why do I want to run straight downhill? I want to play in a, I want to play in a competition-free zone where the only place that person can get that experience is working with us. And I want to share that with everybody that we work with. And I, and I think that it starts not only with the people that work for you when you attack, attract the best talent, but when you attract the best customers, is I think you need to do a couple of things. You need to see people where they are. You can't have rose-colored glasses and see people. You have to see where they are right now. But stop, I think you stop were... right there, please, Mark. Sure. You have to see people where they are right now. What's an example? Meaning you have to see what their capability is today. You know, what they can do and what they can execute in elegance and excellence today. Not what they might be able to do tomorrow or next week or next year. But you have to see people where they where they are. But I think the, the important thing is what you also want to do is you want to see people at their highest potential where they can be. You want to believe in people so viscerally that they believe in themselves. Now, are you, talking about, are you talking about clients? Talking about everybody in your life. I, I, that could also be the guy that that could also be the guy who's uh, who's at the checkout counter at the grocery store. That could be the person that could be the, the level of kindness of everybody that you interact with in your life life. Because remember, you know, everybody has the power to ruin somebody's day. Everybody has the power to improve somebody's day. And it's amazing to me how by just just a little belief in somebody's ability to succeed can take somebody that 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 has that doubt and can turn them from the acorn into the into the mighty oak. So if you see somebody not for today, but for tomorrow, for next week, next year, what are the downside risks with that? Well, uh, ask that question again, because I want to make sure I heard it clearly. If, if you see somebody that if you're not doing what you said and instead you're you're looking at seeing somebody not today, but you're seeing somebody for their potential down the road. What are the negative ramifications that come along with that potentially? Well, I don't. I think it's more if you read Jim Collins' books about getting the right people on the bus and the right people in the right seats. I think that's a you know sort of a, a business bible at this point for a lot of people. I just think that the idea is that part of it is is educating and coaching people to put them in, the, in their in their in their best places. Mm. You know, meaning you know there, there's a, you know I go back to Indiana basketball again. There were an awful lot of people who led to a lot of Big Ten championships and national championships who couldn't put the or the rock in the ocean, so to speak. So Bob Knight didn't have those people shooting, but they had him playing tough defense. They had him rebounding. They had him uh, setting screens. And I think I think part of it is an assessment of people of where they are now, but also giving them the education and the confidence and the training to see where they could be. And and uh, you know one of the things that you know like I think that you know if you're going to play you know if you're going to play tennis in the U.S. Open and want to win the U.S. Open or Wimbledon. You can't say I've got a great forehand, but I can't hit a backhand and just work on my forehand because everybody will just hit to your backhand and you won't win any matches. But I think having said that, I've I've never been, I think a lot of people try to work on their weaknesses. And for the most part, 
for the most part, as a general rule, I don't like people to have strong weaknesses. I like people to work on their unique ability and make that so special that 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 they play at such an elite level that nobody else can can do their unique ability. And I think it's helping people to find what that unique ability is and then helping drive to that so that they can be special. In fact, after you're with our organization, probably about four years or so, I want everybody in our organization to be what we call an SME, a subject matter expert on something. And it could be something technical or it could be something very general, but I want somebody to own something that is their unique ability. What differentiates Northeast Private, Mark? You guys have a lot of competition. There's a lot of people looking for wealth management, financial advisors, those kind of things. How do you separate yourself? Well, I think I think it starts, there's some basic things you have to do. But the first thing you have to do is you have to work harder than people. You have to care more. You have to do all the things that you can control. You have to make sure that you over-communicate. You have to do the things that are there. But I think ultimately what it comes down to is is that um, whoever asks the most powerful questions wins. You know, at the at the end of the day, um, I find that I find that in most businesses and the financial uh, services business is no different. That people oftentimes look at it from their perspective about the product or service that they're selling. And I think ultimately, what you want to do through a process of powerful questions is you want to get really granular on what people are trying to accomplish what their hopes and what their dreams are. And, and, you know, for, for our clients, I think we're kind of known as the people that help people create multi-generational wealth. So when you're sitting with somebody is they're not looking for wealth management. They're not looking for insurance. They're not looking for tax strategies that could be part of the solution, but I think they lead with the stuff rather than leave with what the person is really trying to accomplish, what their vision and dream is for their business, for their family, for their life. And I think that that's the place that people miss. Like, I almost think like if you were going to hire somebody in virtually any business and you wanted and you wanted them to become the best golfer in the world, and you said they came to you and they said, hey, Nate, I want to be the best golfer in the world. I think most people's solution are, well, I want you should go buy the best set of golf clubs in the world. You got to buy the, the, the Callaways or the Taylor clubs. And I can promise you that I, as a golfer, have the best set of golf clubs known to man but I am a terrible golfer. I stink. And I think that if you gave, you know, your favorite professional golfer, a decent set of clubs, they're going to hit the ball a mile down the middle of the fairway. So I think what we want to do is help people work on their financial swing. We want to help them work on their life swing. They want to get clear on what's there. And I think the idea is, I think in many businesses, they do it in a very cursory way rather than in a granular way to get granular, granular way to get to the core of what people are trying to accomplish with their life. What is it, what do they want their life to look like? And how do they put together a plan to do it with intentionality, not by happenstance? They don't need another how-to or another product or another strategy. What they need is they need somebody to help them have the life they want now and keep it that way forever. Relationships matter. I mean, don't you think in most businesses that you're not in the business you say you're in, you're really in the people business? You're in the high trust relationship business? It's true 99% of the time. No doubt about I mean, it. But 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 all often, Nate, don't you also think like there was a project that I did about 10 years ago where I where I said, maybe it's 15 years ago, and I said, let me take a look at our top 50 clients and let me try to see if I could find commonalities with the clients of what those 50 look like. And so I started to put together a list of, of commonalities, and they were generally big thinkers. They were generally very loyal. 
They generally appreciated our expertise. They generally wanted to be in a transformational rather than a transactional relationship. I probably had about eight or 10 that were really relatively common with all of them. And then I, I thought about that for a little bit. I kept thinking and thinking and a couple of years went by. And then I realized that's who we were as a firm, that you can't attract, you can't give what you don't have. Meaning if you cut a, an orange open and you, you squeezed it, juice would come out. You can't give away who you aren't, who you aren't. And we stopped trying to be th all things to all people. We stopped trying to do business with transactional people. We stopped trying to do with, with people that were, you know, that were matchers or takers, not givers. And I think the, the idea to me is that our business exploded when we started to use the law of attraction. Mm. I've said it multiple times on this podcast and I'll say it again because it fits perfectly. The three rules of business. Rule number one, all things being equal, the, again, the equal playing field, the level playing field, all things being equal, people want to do business with friends. Right. Rule number two, all things not being equal, you starting downhill versus the other guy starting uphill, people <laughs> still want to do business with, with friends. And rule number three, make friends. Because <laughs> that's everything that matters in this life is the ability to connect to influence, to have that trustworthiness, the likability, to know that, hey, you care. You said you have to care more than the other guy. You have to be overly communicative with the client or the customer. And and even with your own people, I would imagine, Mark. It, it I, you know, it's you know that I think the you know the the challenge I think, at least for me, and I, I found it with a lot of my fellow business owners, is as you go from the great artist to the great CEO, and you aspire to go to that, or you go from a good leader and you aspire to be a great leader, or as you, or as you go from someone who owns a business to an entrepreneur, I think it's an easy jump to get there with your clients, customers, patients, whatever you call the people you do business with. I think what's harder, what was to me was a slower on the uptake is to make sure that the people that you work for and work with you need to you need to communicate with them not not only as much but even more and they're they're as or more important to your business than the clients mm. and and I think that once you make that mental jump that's when your business can take off because you really don't grow you know everybody wants to grow their business but you don't really grow a business you grow people by investing in people and if you pour into people for weeks or months or years or decades that's how you grow a business well and, and that was going to ask you this question this is the perfect time to ask it so to you as the president and CEO of this business, what's more important to you? What's what's most important? The whale high net worth potential client or clients or the people that you have working alongside of you? You, you know, it's like telling I have five kids. It's like you telling me, asking me, which are my, you know, which two kids do I want to get rid of? Or, you know, what's more, you know. Well, I know kids? it depends on the day. That's OK. But I, by, by the way, I, I told the kids I'll be announcing uh, that uh, it this weekend and you don't have to be there to win or, or to there you lose. go. Yeah. But uh, we always kid, kid with that with the kids. But I think if you put a gun to my head, they're equally important. But if you put a gun to my head. It's got to be the people that work for you, because my my belief is is that you, if you operate in both elegance and excellence and build an organization that's second to none, those whales will show up. Mm. Build it and they will come. 
I, I mean, I mean, or don't you want an organization that remember you said there's a lot of competition in, in our business and everybody tells me, oh, it was much easier when you built the, my widget company or my healthcare company or my financial company. And I'm saying, I think it's actually easier because I think there's more technology out there because although there's a lot of people, if you do the right job at getting your messaging through, you you know, I don't believe in competition, Nick. I mean, Nate, I apologize. I don't believe in competition, Nate. I believe in differentiation. And so the idea is it's about differentiating yourself and people are smart enough. Discriminating consumers are smart enough to differentiate by, before, beside people that can get the job done and people that just have a license to sell products. But what about the people that aren't like you, Mark? There's a lot of smart numbers guys that could probably invest your money well, secure you financially, you know, have insurance and all this stuff, but they just don't have that it factor. They don't have that that Mark Murphy. They don't have that Bobby Knight or that Deion Sanders. What kind of advice do you have for those folks? I I think here's the beautiful thing about uh, here's the beautiful thing about business in general. Um, you know, you gave like your three golden rules a few moments ago. Here's the great thing I love about this, Nate, is that um, there's many ways to skin a cat. You know that 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 having you, you could talk about the it factor, and but the it factor can come in many forms. And sometimes at the end, at the end of the day, I think it's sort of beginning with the end in mind, meaning if you want to do business with somebody, what are the things that you would have to do to make sure that that person felt taken care of and that you were the right person to do that work? Mm. And, and, and what I say to my guys all the time, in fact, I just came out of a meeting where I said it, I must have repeated it six times in the meeting. I said to them, what are you willing to do that you're not doing now to have what you don't have? Mm. And that, and that like doesn't, that. you know, and, you know, I go, and I also go back, like I have a partner, uh, one of my partners um, who uh, has, has become an, 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 a, a fearful and now an adequate public speaker, but is not a great public speaker and does not love it. By the way, he's become a top flight advisor. So I could have just beaten him down and tried to force him to become maybe an average or a better than average speaker with lots of practice. But rather than forcing him to do that, I forced him to, I, I allowed him to work in areas that he felt more comfortable with and be able to build a world-class practice and business as a result of, of playing to his strengths rather than not his strengths. Meaning, you know, I hate to go back to sports analogies, but you know, if you've got, you know, if you've got a rugged offensive line, maybe you should run the ball. <laughs> you right. know, if you, if you, if you can jam the ball down their throats, why, why would you be, you know, why would you be trying to throw deep if you don't have a great wide receiver core and you got a great offensive line? Well, it sounds like you took the uh, Jim Collins approach yet again in that yeah. exact example. So uh, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to talk briefly too about some of the other things that you, you're doing. You've got the, this book that's come out, the ultimate investment a roadmap to grow your business and build multi-generational wealth. What was the impetus? What, what caused you to write the book, Mark, and kind of give us a high-level overview of what you're, what you're helping people with? Well, I think you go into a, into a group of entre like people that are entrepreneurs where you know, I get to do a lot of public speaking. And so you'll, you'll sit in a room, whether it be 10 or whether it be 5,000 business owners, and you'll, you'll ask them the question, um, 
how many how many people in this room are entrepreneurs? And literally 98% of the hands go up. And I think that ultimately, for about 98% of them, they're they're very incorrect. They're not business, they're not entrepreneurs. They bought themselves a job. They're getting paid for what they do rather than what they know. And I think, you know, what and I and I think the evolution for them becomes is you've got to st- you've got to start to get paid for what you know, not what you do. You've got to have you talk about some of the, the Haber rules. I'll give you some of our rules. One is your money has to work when you're sleeping and your business has to has to has to has to uh, accumulate revenue without you doing some activity. You know, without, you know, if you're a doctor putting your hands on somebody's in somebody's mouth or, you know, or, or sitting in front of a client to, to, to do business. And I think those. Let, let me let me interject. I'm sorry. Real quick, Mark, on that point, let me just ask you. How important is it for for an entrepreneur, for a business owner to have a business that is making money regardless of whether he or she is there? I mean, is that is that a a critical key to to multi-generational success? I I think that, remember, there's a lot of people that own businesses that have jobs and they're very well-paying jobs. But, But ultimately, I think you've got to learn how to be able to scale. And it's got to be about, and if you and if you can, if you can teach people for, to what you know, that's where you can scale, and you can be you can be making money not just when you're working, but you can get paid for your intellectual property and what you've created. And I think that that without that, I, I'm not sure. You know, I, I'm not sure. You know, like if you ask somebody a question, if I if I if I talk to a business owner and I said, if we put you in the witness protection program for two years, the first question is, would your business survive? And the second question is, would it thrive without you being there? And for most people, it's, well, if I'm not there, there is no business. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, that's a job. That's not a business. And that's certainly not an entrepreneurial mindset. And so what you want to do is, is teach people an entrepreneurial mindset so that they have the tools necessary to not only compete, but to thrive. Absolutely. Why do you think so many owners have problem with that? They take on everything. They're doing the HR, they're doing the finance, they're doing the sales, they're doing the purchase. They've got their hand involved in everything, and they don't allow their employees to grow, to thrive, to prosper. Uh, and it's a micromanagement style. Why do so many people struggle with that, do you think? Uh, one is, although people think they're creating abundance, they play in scarcity where they're, you know, they're, they're afraid, you know, afraid to do anything. And you also have the founder's curse where nobody can do it better than me. Mm. And I think, and I think ultimately, you know, that, that it's, that it it's, it's, uh, is that they, they surround themselves with people that they become a funnel for, meaning that they become in many businesses, they become a funnel to the growth of the company because everything goes through them. And I think, and I think that interesting as I talk to people, most people just have not been taught or given the tools necessary to execute that. That I think that you know they don't teach that in business school. They don't teach that in medical or dental school. They don't teach that in law school. They don't teach that when you get an MBA. They don't teach you entre- you know entrepreneurialism is a new major in most universities. When I went to school, that wasn't it was it was accounting, finance, and marketing in business schools. Now now they're trying to teach people how to go do this. And there's and there's re- there's research and technology and techniques out there. But I think most people have not been able to ex- you know to 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 find that. And also they're not, they're not able to find the right people in their organization. But yes. I think ultimately part of the problem is they also don't teach people how to hire properly because you have, you have to have people that really understand you and understand your business. God bless you.
and they can really understand you and understand your business and also have your core values. Yeah. And I think ultimately that's, that's uh, you know, that, that, that you often have people that, that are not, that are misaligned with you and your business. So you never create that synergy in the business. So you just say the hell with it. I'll just do it myself. Yeah. When you empower others uh, to, to rise and the ability to grow, it makes your business, it can make your business so much more successful uh, if you do it with the right people and the right teams. Um, I, I have had several sports analogies throughout this conversation, so I did want to touch on this real quick. I see that you're reg- we have something else in common you may not know. Um, I see that you're a registered advisor with through the NFL Players Association Approved Advisors. Um, when I graduated law school back in 2000 and, uh, 2008, um, I was uh, became a licensed agent for a few years with the NFLPA, so I was representing NFL players. What's your What's your experience been like working with uh, some professional athletes? Well, we have. Um, well, I always thought, you know, you know, we have p- people in uh, in sports and entertainment, you know, film, you know, music uh, and sports. And so, when you grow up dumb and broke and suffer in New York, it's kind of cool handling these celebrities and athletes, and it gives a little bit of sizzle to your practice that you handle some, you know, some famous people. Uh, that's there, but I, but I find myself um, not seeking that business, but seeking people that are serious about it. Because there was an article, Nate, that came out about twenty plus years ago in Sports Illustrated that that talked about that eighty one percent of professional athletes will either be bankrupt or in severe financial distress within two years of retirement. And I promise you, I only want to work with the nineteen percent. <laughs> and 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 the idea is that 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 ultimately that if you cannot get the support system around them and get them to get on, on the right path, um, uh, you have no chance of helping them succeed. In fact, there is a client that uh, signed a contract for about a hundred million dollars, you know, not too long ago that uh, I'm ready to resign from, wow. uh, just because I will not sit back. And I will not watch this person implode and continue to make stupid decisions after stupid decisions. I, 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 I can't sit through it because I have done everything I've can. Yes. To make sure yes. that they're there and they're on, they're on a, a, you know, they're on a toboggan ride to hell and a yeah, toboggan that's, ride to bankruptcy. It, and it, I, that's a terribly frustrating thing, a position to be in, because that story is so much more than the other. The, it's eighty percent, like you mentioned, eighty twenty, and eighty to the bad side. You know, you for every. For every Marshawn Lynch, you have a gazillion uh, uh, Antoine Walkers. I actually had on uh, Wally Angulier, who used to play for the Bears, and he's now, yeah, he's actually now a certified financial something or, you know, working with professional athletes um, to, again, do that, to help secure their futures. Because he knows, he knows what, he's got money, but he knows how many of his friends and former teammates don't. And he's trying to help these guys, uh, uh, you know, be more responsible, I guess. You know, it's gotten even crazier. I'm now working with the parents of 16 and 17 and eight year olds who are signing these NIL deals. They're getting paid out of high school uh, to wow. to uh, to do work. And 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 it's so amazing. You almost see the support system they have. And you could tell right away when you get on the phone with their parents, whether this kid's got a shot to succeed or they don't have a shot to succeed. I I almost what I love about the NFL is um, there's a pension plan if you if you can make it four years. They force mm-hmm. you to max out the 401k plan. I almost wish that you could almost have a rule with professional athletes that force them to take, you know, 20% of their, if I could be God for a minute, if I could be a God for somebody, 
I would almost force them like you almost force the child actors. And I know you can't because you're dealing with grownups rather than kids. But almost like what I see with child actors, where I'd almost force them to take 20% of their gross pay and almost lock that up into something that will produce income for them at a later date for the rest mm. of their lives. Yes. Um, I think you froze for a second. I was just saying I had a client that I I had a I had a client. I had a client. I think my internet is it back. There you go. I, I could see you now. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say I had a client that, that spent over $4 million on their wedding and did not have enough money to fly home. Oh my God. And I spent, and I spent my, the days prior to the wedding negotiating with florists for discounts and everything else. And, and, you know, they knew well a year in advance that the money was not there well, and yeah, spent, spent their last four and a half million dollars. That's uh, I see that to me, that's a, uh, um, an issue that a lot of people have, and I don't know what this is called. You probably do, but there's people, no matter how much money they have, they have to get rid of it. It's almost like they're afraid of it. They don't want the responsibility. They're not worthy of it and they have to spend it. Do you, what, what do you call that? Um, we call besides, that, stu- besides stupid. And by the way, it's not it? limited just to athletes. It's amazing to me how you sit with people who have made and created a lifestyle over the course of their life and have never saved any money. I know it sounds very basic, but there's only three things you can do with your money, Nate. You can save it, you can pay your bills, and you can spend it. (laughs) And if you do it in any other order, there's never any money to save. And it's not unique to athletes. They just are, you know, they're just so so high profile in the sense that you can, you always read that story, you know, Joe over his career made $143 million. And he is, he filed bankruptcy today with $22 million in debts and, you know, $40,000 in assets. Yeah, no, I, I'm yeah. talking across the board. I agree with you. That could be people making sixty thousand a year that are but, spending but, seventy a year. I think part. I think part of it is that you want you want to that you need education. That's where you talk to people. I think the number one reason why businesses fail is they don't have cash confidence. So the first thing you start with is cash confidence because one, when I've made my when I've made tens of millions of dollars, millions and tens of millions of dollars. It's when I had cash and somebody else needed cash. And it's hard to have a long-term business plan because life is not perfect. There are recessions, there are setbacks, there are other things that occur. So you need the cash confidence so you can have your long-term plan knowing you've got enough cash confidence to to, to see the plan to fruition. Mm. And so cash confidence is, you know, that, that ultimately you see businesses, even p- people with good balance sheets, but they're so illiquid that they're one bad quarter or one bad year from the whole thing collapsing. And so that's why, you know, before I talk about feeding your money machine, because I believe the best investments entrepreneurs make is when they invest in themselves. You know, I want you to feed your money machine, but before you get that, you got to have cash confidence. Beautiful stuff. Northeastprivate.com. We've linked that in the show notes, Uh, getting close to finishing up, but I did want to ask you, of course, about your, Hero of the Hour podcast seems like it's fairly new. You got thirty episodes in. What was the inspiration behind it, and and who are the people you're talking to? Well, I I think that you know ultimately I I kind of joke because I, I was telling you before I, you know what uh, I think you have to put your ten thousand hours in as Stephen Covey says to be <laughs> to be uh, uh, to be proficient at something or to master something. So I want to first give you a compliment to tell you you've mastered the podcast, and uh, I aspire to be Haber like. By my second year, so I kind of always kidded the the first dozen episodes of the Hero of the Hour podcast, where 
I'd say I called it the Hero of the Hour podcast, the only podcast you can't understand. But I think <laughs> as I've as I've started to at least get a little bit of 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 thing is I think you want to tell interesting stories and give people actionable items to make their lives better. Mm. And I think you want to feature people that are not only have interesting stories, but you want to fe- feature people that can help people make other people's lives better. I think my goal, as you look back on your life, isn't about the money I've made or the awards that I've gotten or, or the things it's, it's, it's the amount of lives of the people that we've touched. And I'd love to figure out a legacy where I could improve the lives of maybe a hundred million people directly and indirectly. And they want to wake every day, making other people's lives better. And I think that that's, that's what drives me. It gets me up out of bed every, every, every day. And that's, uh, you know, that's why I write the books. That's why I've got a column every month in, in dental economics or in Forbes or, you know, where a lot of, you know, major national uh, magazines you'll, you'll see me writing in is because I want to, I don't want to keep the information we have proprietary. I want to share it with the world for a couple of reasons. One, because I want to make the lives better of everybody we touch directly and indirectly. And the other thing is it challenges you as an entrepreneur that when you give away your best stuff, it then challenges you to create more stuff. Mm. And so it challenges me to always be in, in creation and fascination mode so that whatever I'm talking about today, I'll be talking about something you know different three months from now. I love it. Hero of the Hour podcast. We've linked that in the show notes. Uh, thank you for the tremendous compliment coming from you. That is fantastic. We actually have had a a common guest on the show already, though. We had I had Fred Joyle on my show uh, a couple of years ago. Well, Fred is a dear, dear friend. We sit on a number of boards together. Uh, the founder of One Eight Hundred Dentists. But my favorite Fred, my favorite Fredism is is bold as a superpower, which was the name of yes, one of his books. Exactly. And That's what uh, he, was promoting. he is a, uh, you know, he is a, uh, he, he is, he's been very, he's been a, been an important friend for to me as well. So I'm, it's, I'm, I'm glad you're getting some, some great guests. I, I hope I can live up to the, uh, the standards of your other guests. Thank you. Thank you. And, and you have, uh, we have linked Northeast private in the show notes. We've linked hero of the hour, anywhere else you want people to go online, social media, et cetera. Well, you know, I, I'd, I'd love them to uh, go online and, and buy uh, the ultimate investment. Um, we also have two other books called Extraordinary Wealth, which I wrote about four years ago to create, showed people how to create multi-generational wealth. And my first book was on mergers and acquisitions. But uh, I'm just more than happy to, to talk to anybody. And, and I just just want to want to want to help you get the message out, because I think one of the thing, one of the many things we share in common is we is we want to just help people and make make this uh, planet a better place to live in. So uh, I, ho- I hope I can play my small role at help at doing that as, as, as I know you do too. Hey, uh, Mark Murphy, awesome conversation. Continued success to you and your fantastic team. Really great connecting with you. Thank you, my friend.